0: So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers, and we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen, and I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better that way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip so once you've completed the quick survey you can enter for a chance to win a hundred dollar amazon gift card terms and conditions apply again that's podsurvey.com slash james james thanks for your help this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. One of my favorite people to talk about writing with is Tucker Max. I just read this. I didn't know this before. But there's only three people in history that have had three books at the same time on the New York Times bestseller list. One of them is Tucker Max, my guest on the podcast today. And the other two are Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell because I didn't know that before this podcast. But anyway, I always love talking with Tucker about what is the nature of a story, how important story is to success, whether it's in writing or business or in relationships. And once we've established that, we get right into how do you tell a good story, no matter what your objectives are. So here we go, part two of the Tucker Max episodes. So you've been posting every day or every couple of days. This lessons you've learned, and it's and it's, it's very nice. They're not they're not like blog posts. So I really uh, uh, appreciate this this new style from you. It's just like these very short, concise but very poignant lessons you've learned. And you have one which basically says, in sort of a battle of ideas and stories about ideas, the person who can tell the right story is going to yeah. be the better idea. Even oh yes. And I think that's a meta skill. And you've been referring to it in this podcast. That's almost a meta meta skill. No matter what you do, no matter what your skills are, you need to be able to tell the story
1: about those specific skills. And I agree with that completely. I mean, that's the next product we're building at Scribe is the storytelling course and the storytelling, like tell your story. We're going to build like as a memoir, tell your story, but then also storytelling as a skill. There are a lot of good people who know how to teach that. We're going to teach it, I think, a little bit of a different angle on that. Tie back to young people. In the coming economy, there's two skills programming, and storytelling. And storytelling encompasses sales, marketing, all that. If you can do one really well, you're going to be great. If you can do both, then you could be like figuratively a god. And I can only think of a few people who can do both. Mark Andreessen can do both. Yeah. It's interesting because look at great companies like
0: Apple – Think about it. Steve Wozniak had the programming. Steve Jobs had the storytelling. Mm-hmm. I would argue Google, both Larry Page and Sergey Brin
1: could do so. They're, they were no. both pretty good at both. You don't think? No, nah, no. Nah. There's a, I mean, think about this. Think about the head start Google had in every field and it basically screwed all of them up. The only reason Google still exists is because it owns search and search is so dominant. But like, you, look at all the companies. There's Dozens, hundreds of billion-dollar companies that carved off stuff that Google could have. Google does not tell a great story. Google just got there early, Mm. right? Google is very vulnerable. Facebook is very vulnerable. Um, uh, Like, Twitter is extremely vulnerable. I can see, like, Parler is going to carve off a huge chunk. I think Parler has something like 2 million users right now. Right, exactly. Um, They're all very, very vulnerable. Ah, uh, they have a lot of money and they have power. Amazon is the least vulnerable because Amazon tells a great story and has just told the same story over and over. And it's like I order something that shows up in my house every single time, and it's super cheap and it's high quality. Can't beat that. Um, the other three, they're in trouble.
0: Yeah, I mean, and all the companies that tell stories are vulnerable. The Netflixes of the and all their competitors, the Netflixes, Disney's, and so on. Mm-hmm you know, they're going to run out of stories to tell. No, you never run out of stories to tell. I don't think so. They're going to run out of their stories. You know, ultimately, the public decides what stories Netflix can tell. It's hard for them to come up with a unique story. Well,
1: most of those, a lot of those companies are being captured by wokeism. And they're starting to see the impacts, though. So we're going to start to, we may, shockingly, we may see the antibodies to wokeism develop in the corporate world. I love the analogy. I love this antibodies to, to this. Uh... You, you saw what happened with Nike, man. Nike lost in, in the middle of the, the explosive online growth moment, Nike lost $700 million. I think they're maybe, maybe they will, maybe they won't reconsider. They went full woke. They went full, full woke, right? And again, I like, I wanna be real clear supporting oppressed black people in America. I'm all for. It. I'm all in. Supporting woke is a different thing, right? And they went full woke. They weren't like they didn't. They weren't like, hey, we need to, to uh, police reform. We need to, you know, all no, no, no. They didn't do that. They're like, let's fucking kneel down, give the middle finger to mom and dad, like all that sort of shit. They suffered. Whereas, like the companies that didn't, Under Armour did amazing. Their stocks through the roof. You're starting to see. Like the ones that, that it depends where and how they embrace embrace wokeism. But I'm telling you, man, I'll tell you, this is another reason why who wins in in November makes a big difference. If Trump wins, I think Trump and the conservative core go after and break up Facebook and Google, especially Mm -hmm. Google. I wonder, how, I wonder how you would do that. Like, what would you do? Because search oh, is- Oh, are you kidding? You can, you can wield antitrust law any way you want. Like, that's antitrust law is essentially voodoo. It's made up. Like, and I'm telling you as someone who studied this in law school, the, the iconic example is if you sell more than your competitor, it's price gouging. If you sell at your competitor's price, it's collusion. If you sell less, then it's uh, uh, flooding the market, right? So you can make any- It is a power play. It is a pure and simple power play. And I can absolutely unequivocally, I think Trump will go after, well, really, I would say probably Twitter, Twitter and Facebook even more than Google, although Google's trying to de-platform too. They're going to go after them. Absolutely unequivocally. That's one, of the re- that's one of the big things, man. If the Democrats win, the, the tech state and the government state then merge. And then that's when you've got to really worry about, it's not cancel culture anymore. Now it's like people disappear. Right. And like, like that is my fear. Like, oh, the, the end state of that is people disappearing. We're not going to have people in December of this year. No one's disappearing. But the end state of technology and government merged is Soviet Russia. Right. Well, and it's not, what it's It's not
0: like disappearing in the Soviet sense. It's not like disappearing in the Argentinian sense where, you know,
1: you literally disappear. Right.
0: Right. It's disappearing in the Alex Jones sense. Yes. Well, well, and it's also, it's like the the technology allows people to pretend to have good intentions. Hey, we need to isolate you for X, Y, Z reasons. Yes. Now there's a virus reason, but there could be, there's going to be other reasons. You know, there's not going to, there's going to be nonstop reasons, just like the way Someone could defend freedom of speech, but at the same time say, but, you know, a U.S. senator shouldn't be doing an op-ed in the New York Times. Like, you know, there's going to be all these people with
1: good intentions. Like, well, well, yeah, we need to use this technology. Think about the arrogance of the idea that a sitting U.S. senator needs to be deplatformed. Right. And this is not even saying Republican or Democrat. Like a sitting U.S. senator. Someone who was elected by millions of people. Should be deplatformed. Think about that for a second, and then you understand what the New York Times is. They are a partisan in an ideological war. That is what they are. Everything is like that. Look at Twitch right
0: now. And again, this is not about Trump, no Trump, whatever. But Twitch saying any politician is not allowed on Twitch anymore. And at the same time, last night, my daughter
1: was shooting up prostitutes in Grand Theft Auto on on Twitch. So hold on. A platform says no politicians? I get it. Okay, fine. We're making a business decision to eliminate a, uh, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm with, That's not what. The, yeah, if you do it
0: universally across the board, you can't just isolate. I get though. it.
1: I get it. I, like, uh, right. But Twitter, Twitter's decided that Donald Trump tweeting about protecting the sovereignty of America is inciting violence. Dude, think about that sentence for a second. Do you understand? Like that. When I tell you, you have to pick a side. That is what I mean. It's here. It's in front of you. It's right, fucking here. But look, you know what's so funny, Tucker? Because this uh, brings me back to 2013.
0: You know, you were helping me um, with my book, "Choose Yourself," and uh, just that book. There, the, this, the the then CEO of Twitter wrote the forward because Twitter then was this very "Choose Yourself" medium. Like anybody in the world could have a voice. It's very different then. Yes. And now it's the right now. If I want to watch snuff videos. Like videos of people being killed, I can go on Twitter and watch a hundred different videos, a million different videos of people being killed, which by yeah. the way, when we were kids, that, you never would have been able to watch a no. video of that. No. But, but meanwhile, if I just tweet the word hydroxychloroquine or coronavirus, that tweet will probably be like shadow banned or banned yes. or whatever, yes. just mm-hmm. by the bots. Yep. But oh, snuff yeah. videos, no problem. I just watched today by accident. And I really do mean by accident. Like I didn't realize it was going to happen. It's watch this guy getting shot right in the face and dying right on this video. As kids, were you
1: able to watch a snuff video? You're, I keep telling a, you, wokeism is a death cult. Yeah. It, it's it just is. This is not like it's not like I came up with this idea. Like I'm I'm smart. I'm not like you can look at it and see. It's a death cult. That is what they are.
0: So tell me about what the different angle on storytelling. So obviously. We both told lots of stories in our lives. I always think of it kind of classically in terms of the the arc of the hero and in vulnerability and, and sort of sort of this concept of vulnerability buys you freedom. So being able to say what you want, you know and, and being able to handle the consequences, that's freedom and And that goes along that leads leads into the arc of the hero so what's what's the what's the angle, the twist you have on storytelling um which, by the way, you're very vulnerable. People don't. I just want to say out loud, people don't realize, like, because I've seen people try to imitate your style of, of writing. They Doesn't don't work. Doesn't. They, they don't no get it. No one's
1: ever Be- been able to do it ever. No,
0: because they don't get. And this is this is very similar to when when I see people try to imitate Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. They don't get that you're actually criticizing yourself in the books. That's mm. the key. Is that you're actually extremely vulnerable in these books and. When they try to imitate, they're just trying to glorify their adventures in college or no, whatever. No, they're, they're
1: they're trying to get a narcissistic supply. They're trying to get right. the attention they see me getting without. Im- they are imitating what they see. They don't actually see what it is that gets me attention. No, because it takes it takes a a new nu- it takes the skill of storytelling to understand the nuances. I that's I disagree. It takes a consciousness level. Hmm. They are not at that level of consciousness. They are not connected to anything or anyone around them. And that's why they can't see it. Even if, dude, I've had people try to imitate me who are excellent writers and excellent storytellers. They, You don't have to know how to tell a story to be vulnerable. Hmm. They're different things, completely right. different things. Now, if you know how to tell a story and you combine it with vulnerability, you, right. you get magic, right? But you don't have to know how to tell a story to be vulnerable.
0: And, and you know, it's funny you say that because on the reverse side of things, I've seen people try to imitate me, where they'll, ta- they'll glorify their stories of failure. It's this whole category of what I now call failure porn.
1: Yeah, failure porn, exactly. Dude, there's it's, a whole segment of marketers that do this now. It's obnoxious. Right, but they can't tell a story. So, no. there's, so you're right, there are, they are two different skills. And so it makes it very unappealing. You can tell they're faking it because it's like the way they write about bankruptcy is like the way they perceive other people see bankruptcy. The way you wrote about bankruptcy was like, I've never been bankrupt, but I felt it. I felt it when you read it. I was like, oh, God, I understand what this feels like. Not pleasant. I don't want to say you can't do that unless you've been through it because that's not true. But it is extraordinarily difficult to write about things that you have not actually felt. And most people cannot do it. It it takes a world-class novelist, screenwriter, storyteller... To be able to tell a story with deep, vulnerable emotion about something they did not do, like like uh, J.K. Rowling does it really well in Harry Potter, uh, you know, uh, George R.R. R. Martin does it, uh, like uh, like you know, no, no one's ridden a dragon or whatever, like, uh, but uh, they're still writing about very common human emotions. They're just projecting themselves in there. It's really hard to fake that, right? Right. Like a great example is. A great example of someone who
0: can't do it actually is Charles Bukowski. So you look at his first four novels, you know, Post Office Factotum, Ham on Rye, Women, uh Oh Hollywood. So for his first five novels, he's basically telling his a, a memoir and yeah. calling it a novel. Yeah. But then when he wrote his final book Pulp, which was a pure detective novel, it was like one of the worst novels ever. Like he couldn't <laughs> really tell, write fiction. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and it's so, true. It's I st- I tried to write fiction at the beginning, and it was awful. It was the garbage. Oh, dude, it was the worst garbage dumpster fire of all time. And then I gave up and just told my stories, and the rest is history.
0: Right, and I think I think that also wrote, uh, began this wave of kind of literary nonfiction or narrative nonfiction, which I think has been a positive cultural, you know, thing that's happened. Like I think those are, those are the best stories right now.
1: But, uh, so what, what, tell me an angle on storytelling. Well, the way that I think, I'm not sure, man, because I haven't, we haven't really worked through it, but the way that, well, there's two things. Like the way we're going to teach memoir is very, very different. Like if you look at the way, and I have a whole shelf of all the big memoir books, they're all fucking garbage. (laughs) They suck because none of them address the entire reason to write memoir, Right. And I, I tell all the people in our workshop if you want to join our workshop, it's free. You can watch the whole thing. Go to scribebookschool.com. It teaches all the instructions there. So what, what's your um, the scribe? scribe slash? Scribebookschool.com. And then okay. we have nonfiction and memoir. They're different tracks, and you can do either one. But um, what we teach for memoir, it basically boils down to this no one reads your book to learn about you, they read your book to learn about themselves. But mm. the way they learn about themselves, is through your honest and vulnerable expression of your emotions and your experiences. You know, and and you wrote this in one of your lessons I've learned, and I thought this was very
0: interesting. It made me, A, think of my own writing, but then it made me think of, um, uh, you've probably read uh, William S. Burroughs' Junkie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, he's another guy. I don't really like some of his later stuff, but Junkie is this very direct memoir-style book which packages a novel, because that's what they were doing, about his experiences as a heroin addict in, in New York mm-hmm. City. And it's very just, what, what was very interesting is he goes back and forth between the first person and the second person. And when he's doing the second person, you almost could imagine that he's writing a guide rather than a memoir. And I think it's that that kind of hint of a memoir being a guide, which is, which is basically what you're saying there, that people want to read about themselves. I think that contributed to his success in that is that he says, you know, you don't want to trust these kind of, Pimps because they do this, and so is he writing about himself experiencing these pimps, or is he giving it you suggestions when because he's using the word
1: you? And uh, I think that that is a very interesting way to look at it. When you write second person, it just makes you feel like you're in a conversation, which works really well for it can work really well for a memoir. Yeah, it and depends. You've got to be forth. a different kind of writer. Like I wouldn't recommend that for new writers.
0: Well, if you do it a hundred percent of the time then it feels a little like Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City. It, feel, it yeah. feels a little fake. It's, you're right. It's, it's too difficult. But if you go back and forth, like, you know, I went up to the whorehouse. I brought all my, you know, the $30 I had left. But, you know, you can't mess around with uh, pimps like this, blah, blah, blah. So if you go back and forth, and like you say, it's, it's a combination of first-person memoir. But then there's this slight hint of it being a guide as well as a memoir. And I think that's what you're alluding to. It makes it easier for the reader to, to acknowledge that I'm reading about myself rather than just reading about this guy being a junkie in the 1950s.
1: The, what, what, what memoir really boils down to for most people is the therapy they're afraid to do. Mm-hmm. And so we address that head on. If you're going to write memoir, you need to understand that this is a therapeutic process and that, that if you try to avoid it, your memoir will be garbage and no one will read it, no one will care. But if you engage it and do as, go as deep as you can and, and go as far as you can, you don't have to go all the way, just go as far as you can, then you, both, you are going to get a lot out of it. And then we actually don't tell people they have to publish their book because to, you will get an immense amount out of writing your book and putting it in a drawer. We generally recommend you probably should publish it for a lot of reasons, um, but then we have a guide we help people kind of figure out uh, but like it's a all of the stupid memoir guides. None of them really address the fact that why do people want to write memoir? Why do they want to tell their story? Because they all approach it like how do I sell this? Because they're author or professional writers trying to tell people how to be professional writers. Most people don't care about being professional writers. Like if it sells, cool, like cash the checks, right? Most people want to tell their story, which is a totally different thing, and that is at its core both a therapeutic process and a heroic process. And so we help people understand that and unpack it and then walk through it and see their book as a journey where um, they're uncovering what their story is, who they really are, and being the hero that they needed, that they didn't have.
0: That's interesting. So I I haven't thought of it as, I guess the closest I have come to thinking of it that way is when I advise people, don't, publish something unless you're specifically afraid of what people are going to think of you. If at some point during the process, you became afraid of what people are going to think of you if you say this publicly. That's true for a memoir. That's very true for a memoir. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it's true for, for other things as well you know, for, for fiction.
1: It's it's true for nonfiction just in that in that good nonfiction should pr- put new ideas in, into the world or new collections or new curations or should challenge an established idea. Absolutely, we teach that as well. Like, I, I'm not going to write a book called The Sky is Blue. Why would someone be like, I know that. So it's got to be something new, some new idea or some new take. Uh, whether that challenges you or not is a different idea. Like, I'm not going to be afraid of writing a, a, a new idea in memoir because I'm, I'm not at that stage, right? So for nonfiction, it's is it is it additive to at least somebody's experience? Memoir, I'm with you about fear, fear being a good guide for at least for writing it. There's different things about publishing. You and I are different. Like we're professionals, right? If someone's not a professional, there's a lot of other considerations that they have to to go through before they publish, and they should go through. Not even just legal. Just take all that stuff out. Like a lot of people don't know how to just write about their experience. They know how to criticize others. They don't know how to talk about themselves. And so like, that's something that we try to teach, but like, unless they're getting editing from us, it, you, we, what we teach is <clears throat> here was my experience. That's your memoir. Like if, if the frame is, I'm telling you about what happened to me and what I felt and what I did, that's a memoir. But the, the, the I felt part is very interesting. Oh, I felt is layers, the key. Right. I felt is the absolute key. But if the frame is, here's my family's dirty, awful secret, even if you're talking about the same things, that's vengefulness, that's vindictiveness. Yeah. that's you uh, uh, speaking from a wound instead of a scar, and it doesn't help you or anyone else. Right, right? and by the way, there's a distinction between good writing and
0: book sales. Because if you write, you know, there's a lot of books out there that are revenge revenge books, and they they do fine in sales. There's also a lot of that do poorly in sales. So we're we're not really talking
1: sales at all. No, no, because no. Because that's, the, that's the only revenge books that do well, like celebrity revenge, like a tell-all. Yeah. No, no, regular person's tell-all is going to sell. They don't care. It doesn't. that right. doesn't matter. No, I tell people not to worry about writing at all. Uh, like the the quality of the writing, especially early, because uh, that's that's not why you're writing the book. You're writing the book to tell your story. And to and a lot of times we tell people is to rewrite your story. Not to change it, because you can't change what happened, of course. But uh, you get to decide what your story means. Right? You get The facts are always going to be the same. But you get to decide, my mother abandoned me. That when I was 15, that it meant X to me. When I was 20, it meant Y to me. Now that I'm 40, it means Z to me. You get to decide what it means. And a memoir is the best way to do that.
0: Yeah. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and. I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because, of, because of a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? (laughs) Yes, I definitely got to use hims for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So what challenges have you, when you've been dealing with authors, is there pushback?
1: Like, yeah, you kind of have to get them to dig dig a little deep. No, we, we don't push people that way because um, people can only go so far. And so we'll tell people, like, you You may end up writing multiple – shit, I mean, I've written, what, four memoirs? I got an, I'm got. i working on my next one right now. Really? Like, all about – yeah, dude, all about psychedelic therapy and all that and all the stuff I, I realized in that and how it had changed. Oh, yeah, dude, I'm doing all that. Like, it, Like my story of that. And, you know, like, I wrote that piece on Medium about it. That was just my first two things. I'm two years in now.
0: Well, also, these lessons you've learned – it's a companion piece because I, what
1: you've learned from this therapy is, is it's coming out of you in these lessons you've learned. Here, here, I want your opinion on this. Here's what I think I'm going to start doing is I'm going to keep tweeting them exactly the way they are short, pithy to the point. But then I think I'm going to get on like my little rig here and, and record sort of like, you know, what did I used to do? What do I, uh, what did that cause? What lesson did I learn? Which then would be the tweet. And then what do I do now? You know, and it wouldn't be long probably um, anywhere from two to 10 minutes max about each one of these kind of giving a little bit of a backstory and a little bit of examples and do that as like YouTube videos and podcasts. What do you, what do you think about that idea?
0: I, I, I I love it because that's where you introduce the story into the lesson. There you go. Exactly. When you give the lesson, look, you're a good writer, so you give the lesson. So it forces me to think of my story and yes. how this applies, yep. right? Because because you're not giving anything other than a mirror at the, in in the in the in the lesson. Right. But when you throw in your story, that's when I really want to see how it applies, and then I'll really even more deeply relate. Go even deeper, yeah. yeah. So in and whatever format, it doesn't matter the format whether you write it, video, podcast, do all three.
1: I think I will. I think I'll. I think I'm gonna add that on. I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. Um, I'm just gonna add that.
0: No, yeah, don't change what you're doing because there's a lot of value in just the short. You know, again, I look back to my posts. You know, from ten years ago, they're long. Yeah. Maybe I should have
1: done some of them as more short. You, you know why I started doing short, man, is to learn copywriting. Like I'm a, a, being a great book writer and being a great copywriter are totally different right, things. Hundred percent different. And it was a forcing function for me to 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 really start to be precise with my words. Um, That's why I put it on Twitter first and I get it short and then I put it on the other ones. Uh, That's
0: uh, That's why I, again, this is like 10 years ago, that's why I would do Facebook first (laughs) and then, you know, later on have a book or whatever. But uh, now you're, 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 you're Twitter, you're right, you're limiting it to 280 characters. There's a lot of different models of what makes a good copywritten, you know, message, but it sort of feels like you're doing the, Uh, what's the P what's called the PAS model problem agitate solution. So, you know, I used to, you know, think like this caused
1: much suffering and here's a solution. Uh Yeah. That's a lot. A lot of times I do that. That is, that is pretty standard. Yeah. The thing I'm really trying to do is get the idea across it in the, the most compressed condensed way possible.
0: Yeah. Let me, I I took some of my favorites and, and, um, I've been copy-pasting them. Because a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll read them and I'll say, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me, even though you were, might not have been talking about anything remotely similar to that. Um, so like here, uh, if I want to control, here's one you wrote, if I want to control a situation, my best strategy is to ask more questions rather than try to tell people what to do or give answers. There is far more control in questions than there ever is in directives. Something and that's frame. a real powerful, you know, you were referring to frame control earlier. This is a very powerful frame as
1: well. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. So I'm talking about frame control there.
0: Yeah. So, so like, you know, this is very important in parenting, for instance. If you tell a kid, look, you're not going, you're not going out tonight. Of course they're going out tonight, whether you like it or not. Right. Um, but if, if, if your thing is to say, like, well, what do you think about, um, I don't know, what do you think about, all these killings happening right outside the door. I don't know, if you just ask questions <laughs> to get them to think. Like, like, I used to try to argue with my oldest daughter about college. And yeah. I would say to her, like, you can't go to college because this, 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 this. She would literally just turn around and walk away from me. Yeah. Like, no response, nothing. And I would say, you can't just walk away from me. She would just keep walking. There's no point in trying to control her. But if I start saying, like, huh? Uh, why do you think Google is suddenly not uh, asking for degrees anymore? Or why do you think you know you want to be an actress? Do you how ha- what? Why do you think some people get act- great acting jobs between the ages of 18 and, and 22? Do you think they went to college? What what happened there? And you're right. Asking the questions get plants the seeds and gets them thinking. Uh
1: huh. Yep. Ericksonian uh, therapy. That's the way he did it. He would just tell stories and ask questions. That's it. Never told anyone what to do ever. So let's see, there's, um, uh, I, I love this one as well.
0: Uh, like everybody, in, I'm sure this has happened to you. you ever If you, you ever end a relationship and then suddenly the other person is just constantly thinking you're toxic, no one could ever admit or acknowledge that they might've had something to contribute to this. Of but course. you have this great uh, lesson. Um, you say, the only toxic relationship I can have is with myself. Every other relationship in my life is simply a reflection of the relationship I have with myself. Once I really got this, I had to make many changes. So I love the general net. I had to make many changes. <laughs> There's no story there. There's just kind of the, the, this is like the umbrella on top of a story. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it is. And do you notice the way I frame them to every single one? I never say you, it's never second person. It's never telling yeah. anyone else what to do. It's always me, always. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, let's see. And
0: here's another one similar. So a relationship that cannot tolerate, this is, this is actually an extremely important one. I might even have commented on this when you first put it out there. A relationship that cannot tolerate a thoughtful conversation about needs, disappointments, and desires is not a healthy relationship. Okay. We could have just done the entire podcast and just <laughs> said that one line. Easily. And then, hey, good to see you. Good talking to yeah. you. Um, that's such an
1: important concept mm mm-hmm. huh. Oh, yeah. Give, tell, me the, tell me a story there. Tell, give, me, give me an example. I mean, God, I could just talk about a million things in my marriage alone. Like, um, both Veronica and I both, uh, when we met, and still even years later, um, are not very good at expressing things in our needs. So, like, for example, um, okay, I can't stand it when she uses my razor to shave her legs, right? <laughs> And she stopped doing it. But for a while, this was like a big fight in our house. And so I would like criticize her and yell at her. And like, it's so upset about this, right? And I was expressing, I had a need. And the need was I needed my razor to be reserved for my face. Right? And, uh, and, and I, was, I was expressing this criticism of her. Why would you do this? You don't care about me. You're so selfish. right? And then uh, eventually I'm like, I, I realized, okay, she's not getting this. So I had to start talking about it. Like when you use my razor, I feel like you don't care about me that, because I've asked you about this multiple times and, and then you do it anyway. And it makes me feel like, uh, why are we even in a relationship? It, uh, like if the person I'm with can't even respect a simple boundary I'm trying to draw. And then she was fine crying and like, cause it wasn't about criticizing her. I expressed it as my need, not her, a problem with her. Well, let me, ask you, let me ask you this. What if you don't really know what your needs are? Because let's say you're… you got you you, to think and figure those out
0: then. Yeah, because, you, I mean, a lot of relationships, and this is talking about frame control, a lot of relationships, as you know, there's something called frame fatigue where one person has too much of the frame all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the other person just, just disintegrates in frame. and That's uh, called codependency.
1: Mm. Where you, yeah. where, so just define that, because I, I always well, it, that it's essentially when you are uh, uh, relying on the other person to feel emotions for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so in in a relationship like that, if someone is has controls the frame the whole time, and the other person doesn't, uh, the person controlling the frame the, the the whole time is getting something from them, right? They they need whatever it is, a submissiveness from a partner. They need the illusion of control. They need, they need something. There's a reason because if someone is powerful enough to control their frame all the time and is a higher level of consciousness, they're going to be with someone who, um, who can hold the frame back on them, who can have their own frame. Right. Uh, uh, And because when you're in a relationship, they have their frames you have your frames and then there are co-frames you know like our relationship is defined it's a negotiated thing relationships are right and so um it's not all one thing and so uh, like in any relationship it is negotiated and both the needs are being met it's so like that woman is getting i'm assuming it's a man controlling the frame but it doesn't have to be it's not a any stretch but the the man's getting something he wants and so is the woman uh it's not he's not the bad guy there she, they're both equally bad or good. There's really not a moralistic judgment. They're both trying to meet their own needs, really not through effective ways uh, uh, in terms of if they want to like have a happy, elevated consciousness and a good life. But it works. It makes him less anxious about control. It makes her feel a sense of security. Let's say I'm just guessing, right? Uh, okay, then it, it's sort of like why? It's like, why is a drug addict a drug addict? Because uh, why is a heroin addict a heroin addict? Which is a great example. Because the heroin works. The heroin mm-hmm. is, is a way for them to manage the pain of unfelt emotions. Right? It may destroy the rest of their life, but it works. It absolutely does what it's supposed to do. Right? And so, so like it's, that's it's that idea. So uh, this this next
0: one I think is really great. There's a lot. There's a lot in here. Which is uh, so? I'm quoting you now. The most important decision in my life is who I spend my time with. The most important actions I take are what I do to make sure I create value for them. And you're talking about you say my work, both personal and professional, and then yeah. everything else is noise. And I think that second, first, the first line is absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the simil- thing yeah, it's 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 also like you're the average of the five people you spend your time with and yep. and so on. but this idea that the most important actions I take are what I do to make sure I create value for them that's incredibly important to for people to to understand because there's so many instances where you're trying to reflect your own importance in a relationship as opposed to uh, thinking about the self-worth and needs of the other person. And that could be in a a conversation at a Networking cocktail party, or it could be in work, or it could be in relationships, like or with your kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People don't want you to establish dominance over them. They want to know you think they're important, and you have yep. to provide value for them to realize that. For them to give you, you want to give them status in those situations. And yeah, I, I think I think that's a, that's a really valuable a valuable lesson. So uh, look, Tucker. It's always great to to update and uh, how's business? You
1: you run a publishing company. We're doing good, man. We March was a disaster, like it was for almost everybody. We had a full slate of of sales calls, and then two days later, we had zero, <laughs> zero. Uh, and then then we launched Scribe Book School uh, in March, and it blew up. And we had we taught ten thousand people how to write a uh, their book for free, either nonfiction or memoir. And now that's kind of blown up. It launched a whole lower lower tier coaching program uh, mm-hmm. that's been doing amazing. And then uh, we're we're on track. We we had our best month of all ever in our history in June. That's and then great. our second best month was April, and our third best month was May.
0: So, wow, that's awesome! Like
1: we've had a pretty good three months. Yeah.
0: And you know, originally you were doing a lot of um, like. I'll call it like business self-help, you know, marketing, business, sales, mm-hmm. management, leadership. Yep. And, uh, do you think that became those books kind of became, there's too many of them now? No, no, quite the opposite. I All think right. we've only, we've only just started. All right. Good. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, this is no, just like some of those books I really enjoy. Like Joey no, Coleman, one know, of my favorite I know, people no, in the world.
1: I, I think we've only just started. I think we have literally just started. I think, the day is going to come where it's basically an entry point into being a high-level professional that you have a book. If you don't, it, it used to be what a college degree was. It used to be like, if you don't have a college degree, it's like, who, how can you be taken seriously, right? And now no one cares anymore because everyone got them. It's not a marker of status anymore, And maybe unless you went to Harvard or something. But even then, it's like, oh, look, another asshole is telling me he went to Harvard, right? Uh, I think a book for most knowledge workers is going to be the gateway into high level. Because if you can't, uh, like what it takes to write a book and the way it allows you to be judged, um, I think are 10 times better than a college degree. Because like, yeah, uh, yeah. you can fake your way into a college degree, you can bullshit. Like it's easy to bullshit a college degree, it's not easy to bullshit a book. Even if you pay a bunch of money and get a great ghostwriter, okay. I'm going to, let's say I'm a potential client. Like, let's say you're a CEO coach. You're a hundred grand a year. I read your book and I know it. If you got a great ghostwriter, you don't actually know your things. I'm going to figure it out real quick. If I read your book, it won't take long.
0: You know, and also, I, I think I heard you say this in a talk a while ago that let's say uh, a conference or a corporation is trying to decide who to pick as a speaker or a consultant or whatever everybody's equally qualified, but one person has a book, that's the person to get hired. always with the
1: person with the book. Always. That's easy. Yeah. So there, there
0: was that. And then there was another thing you told me, this related to the memoir stuff, or you didn't tell me this was in a presentation you gave, but write your memoir. You know, now in a world of self-publishing, you know, anybody can write any book and, the, you know, sales are always unpredictable, no matter whether you have, you know, Simon and Schuster as your publisher or you self-publish. Sales are random. But... Think about, this is the first time we can write a book now for our great-great-great-grandchildren to get to know who we are.
1: That is the argument I make in our, the entry point uh, of Scribe Book School is, should you write a book? And the story I tell is that my, my dad's grandmother, my great-grandmother, immigrated from, from Hungary in like 1915 and changed her name to Max at Ellis Island, along with my grandfather. They moved to LA and uh, raised my grandfather and father as Catholics. I did a 23andMe six years ago. Turns out we're Jews. (laughs) I'm Ashkenazi Jew, 25%. My dad's 50, my grandfather's 100%. She and my grandfather never told anyone, including their children. That's hilarious. I would pay any amount of money to have her story. Yeah. That's a good po- That's a good point. And
0: you'll, and you'll never have it.
1: Nope. Nope. Not unless the afterlife is a thing, then maybe I will. Well, uh, on that note,
0: first, I don't even know. So everybody should check out scribe media, your publishing company. There's so many different services you do. It's not just, there's not just one. I can't, I won't describe them all. Check it out. If you want to write and publish a book, We're the place, yeah, we yeah, got and, and, uh, But, but that any snap. facet of that, like yep. you, you'd basically handle any facet of that. Other than I don't think you do marketing, but that's Yeah, we your,
1: do actually. We marketing do? is half of our business now. We just don't advertise it externally. We only work with clients because we have so many. Oh, maybe maybe I have to talk to you then, and <laughs> uh, but check, everybody should check it out. People should also check out your your
0: your tweets and your Facebook page. Every place you put these uh, lessons you've learned, uh, they're great and they're life changing and they're they're very thought provoking. So. Thank uh, you I, I really enjoy them, and I and I hope you. I can't wait for the book of the stories, and I can't wait for the eventual book about the lessons because it's gonna be it's gonna be great. And uh, once again, so great to have you on the the podcast. You were I think you were like my first guest. And now you're my latest guest.
1: I, I know. I do. I still own the record for the most uh, appearances. I've been I on like five or six times. Maybe yeah, I think seven even on times. more than that because we've yeah. di- we, we've
0: divided some into we've divided like several of them into two. Probably we'll yeah, divide we will usually into do two
1: hour episodes. So yeah. yeah, I probably have like ten or fifteen now.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you're you you have been up there, and of course, there's people who are always like it's, you know this is a whole other story. So we'll get into it next time. The whole, more about the cancel culture, but once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James.
1: Yeah, it was fun. It was very fun.